Cast and Blast Conversation Season 3, Episode 12. AJ DeRosa is joining us this week. AJ is one of the creators, co-founders of Project Upland, and we are going to talk a whole lot about R3, about Project Upland, about his takes on the industry, about his uh, his role as chairman for the Sportsman for Biden Committee. I think you guys are going to love hearing AJ's perspective. I really appreciate how candid he was with us, everything he shared, and he was willing to come on and give us his time and have these discussions with us. This is a great interview. AJ DeRosa, Project Upland, Northwoods Collective, coming at you right now. AJ, how are you? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, glad you glad we could finally connect on this, man. Um, first question is the same for every guest we have. Uh, who is... I don't know, ask other guests who AJ DeRosa is, but for you, who is AJ DeRosa? Oh man. Um, you know, I'm a bit narrow focused on my interests. So, um, very much a bird hunting enthusiast. I kind of live and breathe that my bird dog I'll collect double guns. I absolutely love double guns. It's been kind of something I really got into in the past couple of years. Um, yeah, you know, hunting I'd say is the biggest cornerstone of my life. I mean, outside of, you know, my home life, which is, you know, me and my wife and gardening and trying to fix up our house and, and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I'm a pretty narrow focused person. Um, so I wish I could give a little bigger. I mean, um, you know, before these, before I, you know, when I was like in high school and stuff, I was really into skateboarding and, you know, stuff like that. Really love music, still love music. But, um, you know, I guess uh, not very interesting unless you're interested in and upland hunting <laughs> so um yeah real real passion for that i live and breathe it literally so said a couple of things that triggered something in my mind um first yeah. what's growing in your garden oh man uh well i should we should say my wife's garden um i just kind of uh volunteer with labor and and influence some of the vegetable choices but uh, a lot of gourds um we're going to be starting some potatoes we just got some potato pots so um a lot of vegetables really um we have a lot of raspberries and blueberries that grow on our property um that we've actually been trying to encourage along even actually i found a big patch of wild strawberries when i was cleaning up some of the property the other day so we try to encourage that stuff along and and whatnot so yeah really vegetable based um we definitely put in some pollinators um trying to make sure the, you know, butterflies are getting a good migration route and keeping those bee populations healthy. But um, yeah, so that's uh, my family, my mother's side of the family grew up in the gardening business. So my grandfather owned a change uh, garden centers and stuff like that. Um, my mother managed a garden center when I was a kid, my grandfather had already retired and um, growing up in high school, that's actually what I did. I worked in the garden center that my mother managed. So uh, plants have been a significant part of my life, most of my life. And my wife's got a really, really green thumb, um, really good at it. So um, most of our interior of our house has been like covered with uh, growing uh, seeds into seedlings and heat mats and grow lights all over the place right now. I don't know if I'd let anybody in the house right now. So You also mentioned DIY and yeah. thankfully you are, do not live near me because I need a lot of help with a tile job at my house. But um, what you get, you live in New Hampshire. Is that right? Yeah. Central New Hampshire. Our, our folks. Yeah. So our folks in Florida, Southeast listening to this, are you from New Hampshire originally? Where are you from? I grew up just outside of Boston. So um, if anybody's ever visited, you know, Salem, Massachusetts on, uh, you know, on a school uh, trip or whatever, um, I lived in North Andover, which is uh, part of what would be considered old Salem. So that part of that whole area. So it's like north, just north of Boston, about 25 minutes outside the city, 20, 30 minutes or so. We should have done this as a Halloween episode and we could have discussed the <laughs> history of Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah, stay away from there during Halloween. That's that's the advice anybody from that area will give you. <laughs> so we, we have to ask everybody these three questions, um, AJ, and I didn't prep you for them, but but these are really the questions that will base whether anyone okay. for the rest of this podcast. First, <laughs> you have strong feelings about a pineapple on a pizza. I, you know, I'm really passionate about pizza. Um, you know, I, I grew up in an Italian family. Um, you know, my, uh, so 
I am very passionate about pizza dough, um, the whole process. Uh, I'm sure if you're talking about traditional Italian pizza, you know, pineapple is a bit of a blasphemy, but I mean, I also appreciate fusion cuisine. So I, I guess like, hey, if you're doing the pizza right, I don't think it's the pineapple that's going to kill the pizza. It's something else. So um, yeah, if it's done right, I, I'm not against it. I wouldn't say it's my first pick, but I, I honestly wouldn't say I have strong feelings about it other than it is very Americanized. <laughs> okay. I'm going to put you down as a no because that's what I wanted to hear there. Um, yeah. Uh, you're, you're a hunter, you're a fisherman. We're going to talk about that a little bit. What is in AJ DeRosa's snack pack bag when you go out upland hunting, deer hunting, bird hunting, whatever you're doing? Like what, what's, what's the snack of choice? I'm sure you got to go to. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, if, if I'm just doing like a day hunt right out of the house, like, you know, turkey hunting, something like that, like I'm usually just doing some kind of granola bars. I actually eat a ton of blueberry Lara bars, which is like just so random. And I was never into Lara bars, but somebody gave me one chance on a film shoot once. And I was like, man, this thing's pretty good. So, um, other snacks, uh, a lot of Italian, uh, meats and cheeses <laughs> on crackers, uh, easy, easy to throw and throw and just bring it along and cut it up at the tailgate. So, but um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say anything super complex. Um, you know, those complexity, I, I really enjoy cooking. Um, so those complexities do come out in the kitchen, you know, at dinner, stuff like that. But now so. I have to ask this and I'm, I'm going to guess this is not in your wheelhouse, but I have to ask this question because I ask it everybody. Do you have a favorite little Debbie snack? A Debbie snack? I a little Debbie snack. That's what, what I wonder. Like geographic. Yeah, I don't know what a Debbie snack is. <laughs> little boxed snack cake things you can get from the grocery store or whatever. Oh, no, no. Really? I, don't, I don't have as much of a sweet tooth. So. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about um, kind of AJ's origin story. Like yeah. how did you get into hunting, fishing? Like, like how did that kind of come about? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I grew up in a, um, a hunting family. So my, my father's father. Uh, when he came over from Italy, got into hunting, uh, deer hunting, um, when he was probably, I'm guessing probably his late twenties. Um, and then obviously introduced my father. Um, my father really, really loved, loves hunting and, you know, really got into deer hunting. Um, and when I was a kid, um, my father had a bird dog, a Brittany. Um, so that's like, was like right when I was, you know, coming to age to start learning how to hunt. So like the first thing I ever shot was a rough grouse. We spent a ton of time hunting rough grouse and woodcock as a kid. Um, I shot my first deer. Um, I'm trying to remember what the age is for the year you have to buy your hunting license for the first time in Massachusetts. But I drew a doe tag that year and shot my first deer in this property out in Western Mass that my grandfather had been traveling to since like the early seventies. Um, to hunt, which was pretty rad. Um, and then on my mother's side of the family, um, my uncles were really into fishing. My brother, my older brother was really into fishing. Um, so, you know, I did a lot of fishing from that side of my family. I've always kind of sucked at fishing. Um, <laughs> I still kind of suck at fishing, but, um, you know, I still do it. I mean, I live in lakes region in hampshire there's a ton of bass fishing I, I mean there's there's a lot of fly fishing opportunities i mean i i used to film a fishing show so i spent a lot of time getting a lot of chance with some like really talented people that were pretty much like hand me the rod and and tell me how to do it play by play so uh, but i wouldn't say i have any innate talent for fishing uh, i enjoy it there's nothing like you know strike of a fish on a fly rod that's for sure but um yeah so that's that's how i got into it and um in my uh, growing up, like in my late teens, I got into archery. I started with traditional archery and I'd spend a lot of time shooting rough grouse with my bow. <laughs> um, and then eventually um, I ended up getting a deer, um, my first deer uh, with archery. Um, and I, it was in, in October in Massachusetts. And kind of the big thing was, you know, deer season is only open for two weeks with a gun in, in Massachusetts. So, and nobody bow hunted in my family. So it was just like this whole new world was opened up to me, like all this different deer behavior that I never saw. It just really pulled back the veil on kind of just this, what was mostly a game of chance rather than um, really trying to put odds in your favor and stuff like that. So I ended up getting a compound bow and it was kind of like, I didn't look back from there. And I really went off the deep end for bow hunting. Um, 
and I, I obsessed over hunting deer. I wrote two books about it, uh, Urban Deer Complex and Urban Deer Complex 2.0. Really fascinated with the way deer behave in, in developed areas. And then um, around, oh, I think it was 2010, I, I got a new job managing a nightclub, which was just so random because I just, I'm by no means a social person like that. It was an opportunist situation. I didn't have good work at the time. I, my flooring business had gotten swallowed up by the, the recession. So I, I just took the job because I needed to pay bills. And um, when I got into that, that really put a damper on deer hunting, especially because I was really into hunting mature box and uh, putting the time and dedication into, you know, trail cameras and scouting and all that, just like what I had what I had become to embrace for deer hunting was not very possible. So I found myself wandering uh, up to uh, northern New Hampshire where my uncle had a camp. He's had it since uh, the 70s and um, hunting rough grouse again. So um, I got a real bug for hunting rough grouse again. And then I just, I mean, I went off the deep end with upland hunting, like <laughs> off the deep end. I mean, worse than I ever did even with deer hunting. And, and really, I just, I, I struggled to even find a desire to deer hunt now or to do anything that involves me having to sit still or uh and then i got a bird dog and i mean that's just that's it it's it's all over after that so i, I don't i don't foresee uh i don't foresee my hunting styles evolving much past this now maybe changing maybe changing some dog breeds over the years and stuff like that but um and changing the opportunities to hunt different upland game but i don't ever find the end of the kind of the road for upland there's just so many different ways and variables and places and opportunities to do it that it's just like seems endless to me we're (laughs) we're going to talk about r3 a little bit later in this in this conversation but do you think there's a correlation between like mature maturation of stages of a sportsman and and an appeal of like i don't want to say a easier hunting but a different type of hunting like bird hunting yeah. or things like that like do you think there's a correlation there somewhere oh absolutely i mean i think we've all seen like those cartoon drawings where it's like you know first it's like you want to shoot your first deer and then it's like you want to shoot as many deer as you can then it's like you want to shoot a deer with different methods then you want to shoot the biggest deer then you want to take somebody else to shoot a deer and then you become a small game hunter i think that's <laughs> i think that's uh, the way it be- the way it goes and and ironically we i think we all started with small game hunting in some capacity but i think the uh cuz you know especially hunting over dogs um it, it's a bit of kind of that fly fishing of hunting um you know, there's far more efficient ways to kill birds. I hate to say it out loud than to hunt them over a pointing dog. Um, but there's just something beautiful about it. There's something all encompassing about it, whether it's the relationship with that dog um, and just seeing it all come together. It's, 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 you know, so, you know, at, you know, I'm 39 now. So um, at this age, I find myself doing kind of two extremes, which is I either want to go and hunt with my dog by myself or I want to take somebody new hunting. Um, you know, just this week I brought somebody out and shot their first Tom. Um, and that to me is, is at this point in life, that's more rewarding to me than me pulling the trigger on that Tom. So, um, and I, I think a lot of people go through that. I think it depends on, you know, a million factors, maybe personality. Some people get to it at a younger age. Some people get to it at an older age. Some people, you know, just do it in a different kind of method. I don't think people have to settle on bird hunting as their final act. I think some people do it as duck hunting. I see that a lot, um, you know, but, uh, and I, and I think there are certainly obviously people that stick to big game hunting right, right to the end. And, and I'm, I, by all means, I still have an interest in big game hunting, just not particularly whitetail hunting where it's like, I, w- I do want to hunt elk at some point. I, I do want to do stuff like Alaska for caribou, um, you know, different places. I mean, but I have, you know, I've, I've hunted moose. I shot, I've shot a moose, I've shot bear, um, you know, so, I, so I, I have done a fair amount of big game hunting in my life. So. Now you've mentioned dogs a couple of times and you mentioned Brittany's, which I'm a, I'm a Brittany guy. We have two. Brittany. Oh, okay, cool. But what, what breed of dog do you have now? Tell us about your dog. I have a, a wire hair pointing Griffon. So, um, he is five now. Um, he's my first, uh, bird dog, um, for, you know, that's like mine, mine. Um, it's been an incredible experience. Um, I just, you know, I, I remember first filming project upland films 
And, you know, as a kid, when we had dogs, I was pretty young, you know, like early teens, you know, and, and I, I have a lot of vivid and exciting memories about it, but I don't think anything ever prepares you for like when your dog, as in you raised it, <laughs> goes on point for its first time and you shoot a bird over that dog. Um, and that was just, you know, so to now have experienced that, um, it becomes, I think, very similar to that mentoring aspect. So not that I'm mentoring the dog, because let's face it, the dogs are always schooling us, but um, reality being that I'm more excited about it coming together for him than me just shooting a grouse. Um, that's just um, to see that moment in time is really what you're chasing. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm, I'm very, very happy with him as a breed. Um, I definitely, I, I, I would consider moving to a setter in the future, um, but I, I wouldn't be opposed to getting another, another Griff on. Um, I don't know if I moved out West, I'd probably be interested in something that likes to run a little bigger. I mean, he's, he's a grouse dog. So, I mean, he was bred in grouse country. I'm not, not sure how much he'd open up in prairies. I am hoping to find out this year. So <laughs> I, ho I hope he's not going to stick to his normal hundred yards. Cause I hope that it's going to be a little bigger than that. <laughs> but, I, I had a, I had a setter one time that may actually be on point somewhere still today she, <laughs> point several miles away from us sometimes. yeah yeah um so you mentioned project upland before we talk about project upland explicitly i want you to explain kind of northwoods collective and project upland like what's what and how that works yeah so um you know project upland actually became came first um so my start in kind of the industry you know, was my fascination in deer hunting. And, and I wrote the book Urban Deer Complex, which uh, would have been almost 10 years ago now. Um, and before that, I had written, I got published in like Northwood Sporting Journal, you know, some of the regional publications up here, Woods and Waters USA. Um, and I was really passionate about wanting to write. Um, I, I look at the stuff I wrote back down back then, and I'm like, man, did I suck. Um, not that I think I'm exceptional now, but it's certainly come a long way. <laughs> but um <laughs> And um, so from there, you know, I just always had an interest in that. And then I got a camera. I dabbled in photography. You know, I took photography in high school back before digital cameras existed. So I did a lot of film photography and stuff like that. And um, then I got a digital camera and I found myself kind of wandering up north hunting grouse. And I started hitting record on the camera and started recording video and uh, whatever else. And um, next thing you know, I decided to make this short film, which was searching, um, which was the first film for project upland. And I started shooting that film in like 2012, 2013 ish. Um, and that ended up kind of becoming the first film of project upland and project upland was nothing more than just, um, expressing something that I really loved, um, and also capturing it in other people that really loved it. Um, I went around and made like, I don't know, a dozen films or so that I just followed random people around that I had met, uh, met some people through the rough grouse society. Uh, you know, we popped rough grouse society logos on it to try to promote people joining the organization. And it's just like a whole kind of, you know, volunteering my time to do some things with them and whatever. And then, um, I launched the website. I want I want to say it was like 2015, the website went live. And then it was just kind of more like writing about um, some things I loved about it. And I kept doing more films. I got more purposeful about the films. And then um, I had been asked to do some marketing work for some people. And I was like, sure, whatever. And uh, yeah, I just kind of had a, a bit of a knack for it. And um, then I met my business partner um, who's out in Idaho. And we co-founded Northwoods Collective. So Northwoods Collective is a creative agency. Um, Chet came from the world of making movies in Hollywood and stuff like that. He's a couple of years older than me, grew up in Ventura, California. Um, so him and I kind of brought those resources together and, and kind of purposefully created a creative agency. So I ultimately going out and doing everything from making catalogs or providing photography content or making films, commercials, anything for uh, people in the outdoor space. Um, we've produced a fishing television show, um, kind of all sorts of stuff. And um, Project Upland was kind of my baby, um, even more so than Urban Deer Complex. Um, Urban Deer Complex is a bit of a, you know, it's, it's a cult classic for people in <laughs> urban America, but 
Um, it's a bit of a flop. I think maybe 10, 20 years from now when like suburban hunting dominates 80% of what we do, maybe it will be like way cooler, you know, <laughs> but um, Project Upland has really become my baby. And then I, I really always wanted to turn it into a magazine. That was a bit of like the skateboard punk rock kid that always wanted to own his own zine type thing. And um, <laughs> Chet and I against... Um, some professional advice decided to, with absolutely no money, launch a print magazine, which is not cheap and pretty much, you know, financially ruined our entire lives and <laughs> did everything recklessly and in true punk rock fashion. And somehow it succeeded. So, <laughs> uh, and that's, um, and so that's the media end of Northwoods Collective. So Project Upland obviously exists purely in the Upland space. We do dabble in stuff like waterfowl and turkey hunting, but, um, that is essentially a marketing machine for, um, you know, people to advertise no different than any other, uh, you know, Upland hunting magazine or whatever else. Um, obviously we're, we're leaning a lot more into modern, uh, styles of media production, whether it's, you know, audio, we do audio books, you know, we audio record all our articles. We have, a, you know, we own, I think it's nine podcasts. Now, um, we have our online editorial and we have, we own two magazines now, which is project upland magazine and hunting dog confidential magazine. So, um, so that's kind of how that brand evolved. It's, it's the flagship of our company for sure. And it's definitely the most forward facing part of the company. Um, but it still only makes up about half of the actual business that Northwoods Collective does. So, and that's, uh, yeah, it's the origin story of. <laughs> so you said several things that made me write questions down and I'm going to come yep. back to them. First, I want to go back to urban deer complex for a second. Yeah. Because I think it's interesting. You said that 10, 20, 30 years down the way road, this may come back around to be a thing. Um, I am talking to you coming from Florida where development is at just an astounding rate there. Is right. it, do you think it'll be a thing because as we see more and more development and growth of urbanization of America, that book's going to become more relevant, like not, not putting you in an arrogant position, but you almost wrote it ahead of its time because you wrote it from perspective that maybe it didn't apply to a, at a wide enough scale. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up in a time where I remember the first time I told my father that I was deer hunting in the town I grew up in. He's like, what are you talking about? There's deer here. Cause we still travel to the Berkshires to hunt. And that was kind of like, that was when everybody was making the switch of like suddenly, cause the deer populations in Eastern Massachusetts were hunted to near extinction. So the boom didn't come back until I was in my teens, my late teens. So it was a timing thing for me, truly, as, as what I grew up in. But I think it's a combination of two things. I think, I think there's a clear and um, immeasurable influx of uh, urbanized hunters. Um, and secondly, I, I agree that the development, unfortunately, we're building more, we're not tearing things down. <laughs> Therefore, it's going to result in more areas that are going to have to contend with suburban hunting. New England went through this, you know, 20 years ago, um, as where a lot of rural parts of the country where hunting is dominated, is only just starting to introduce these urbanized hunts. Um, and, and it's definitely, I'd say it's, it's mainstream already, per se, I wouldn't say it's, it's, you know, out in left field, you know, as far as a a topic. Um, but I don't think it's, it's not at its peak. I think it's peak is, is down the road as far as it's celebration. And it was never, it's, it's never been a particularly popular topic in the greater part of the industry. And I think it's because of the demographics of the people that were active in it. Like I think about the people that mentored me and the other people that I saw that were like, when it came to like the bigger industry were shunned, you know? So it was like, it was like people laughed at the concept of hunting suburban deer or whatever else. It was like kind of like a joke. Um, and then ironically now it's like, I see people in major publications over like the past like six or seven years that are writing articles that are direct like ripoffs of my book. And it's funny because it's like, the reason I know they're pulling it from my book is because I have their mailing address from when they bought my book, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, okay, dude, like, which, you know, whatever, like, I'm, I mean, I, I, I made it very clear in this book that I, I, I wanted it to inspire people to think differently 
and hunting and to challenge the norm and to understand that this is an evolving process, especially when you urbanize a wild population of animals, they're going to adapt and they're going to adapt rapidly. So it's kind of like when you think of a, a methodology or a trick that works, it just takes a couple generations for them to wise up to it. And then, so, so in that regard, I wrote that first book with the prediction that some of the methods in that book would expire as people became wise to them. And, and I think some of them have for sure, but you go into other areas. I mean, I, where I live is, is super rural. And um, actually the dude that I took it to get out his turkey this week, um, you know, he was telling me about how he shot a deer in, er, you know, uh, rural America using one of the methods in my book, which is this idea of like talking to yourself uh, when you see a deer on a trail or whatever else, like I would walk on trails and intentionally talk to myself because they'd think I was a soccer mom or whatever. And like, they would just stand there. They wouldn't react because they would never been in danger. So he was hunting with somebody else and they saw a deer off the trail as they were walking. And he said to her, like, I'm just going to keep talking. You keep talking to me. Don't look at it. Don't do it. Don't do anything. And he drew his bow back walked past that deer with his bow drawn and shot it, which is the first article that I wrote for Northwood Sporting, Sporting Journal, which is what, 15 something years ago, 15 plus years ago was that topic. So to see it pan out and work in rural America is, is kind of rad. I mean, I just think about with my dog tearing through a grouse cover and seeing the way a deer reacts to it because they're not used to it. I mean, it's not like there's a massive influx of dog hunters around here. There's none. I never run into anybody. So, um, you know, I saw a 160 inch deer stand up in a woodcock cover last year and just stand there and look at us. I could have shot it 15 times, you know, and it was just like, you know, if you were walking in there as a regular hunter and there wasn't a bell dingling through there, that, that wouldn't have went down like that. And that's, that's that, um, that whole aspect of that behavioral thing. And that fascinates me still to today. And I think that that, that concept of how animals process information and, and what you call transgenerational stress inheritance, which is how they evolve. Um, applies to everything, including rough grouse and woodcock. Um, that's why we see woodcock increasingly running away from points or walking away from points. Um, because they're being hunted harder than ever. Um, their their uh, actual migration routes are being narrowed down because they have less cover to land in. Um, so they're getting targeted heavier as a result of just loss of habitat and also combine that with an increase of woodcock hunters. And, and you see this, this new behavior starting to pop up at a more extreme rate. Um, I don't think it's new in the sense of, I think guys were seeing it 10, 20 years ago, but you, I see it all the time. I don't think there's a, a woodcock that my dog doesn't point that doesn't try to run away <laughs> at this point. So that whole holding tight thing is starting to become something very much of like five years ago. Uh, it's interesting because I want to make the correlation for a lot of our listeners. This is something we see in Florida with deer, with bears, with, I mean, bears not being a game species in Florida currently with waterfowl behaviors uh, across the board as we, we see increased development around or adjacent to, I, I think this book is a pretty interesting reference. It's not really what I wanted to talk about, but as we were talking through it, I was like, wow, that's, there's a lot of correlations there. It, similarities to what we are seeing on our state that maybe some of those principles could be applied or, or used to disrupt kind of some of what we're doing today. Right. Um, let's go back to project Upland for just a second. What projects I, I know, what is it? The 2000 miles film tour you guys got going now? Like what are some of the, the projects yeah. you've done there? Just kind of talk about those for a minute. Yeah, so 2000 miles was kind of a response to public grouse, which we did like just before the pandemic broke out. And actually, we were supposed to have an encore tour that we canceled because of the pandemic. Um, public grouse was our first hour long kind of documentary. It was about hunting grouse, various grouse species on public lands in North America. We did it in conjunction with uh, backcountry hunters and anglers and, and some other sponsors. And um, then we decided to do 2000 miles because Jake Terry, who works inside the company is, uh, he is the uh, editor at large for Hunting Dog Confidential and technically one of the co-owners of Endless Migration, which is kind of defunct. It's been absorbed into Project Upland. Um, we decided to do 2000 miles to really highlight this, the central flyway of North America in a similar fashion that we did uh, uh, public grouse. So that's on tour right now. Um, Definitely, I wouldn't say it's doing as strong as what Public Grouse does. And I think that's a combination of people are still a little squeamish about public events um, in the world. And I think also 
wouldn't say Project Upland is specifically known for our waterfall content. So uh, it's taken a little bit of a, you know, an imagination reach because although there is some overlapping, especially when the versatile dog crowd between, um, you know, waterfall and upland, the, you know, that extreme waterfowl crowd, the lab crowd, stuff like that has never really been represented in, in our brand. Although that is what Jake is, you know, like, um, so that, that's our, our, you know, what's going on right now. Hunting Dog Confidential Magazine, we launched last year. Um, we just put our second issue out. Our third issue comes out this fall. Um, we're actually working on what will be the beginning of our fourth year as Project Upland Magazine. Um, so this fall issue, because we launched in 2018. Um, so uh, really excited to see that come to uh, life. Um, Hunting Dog Confidential is definitely a big focal point for the brand. We're, we're currently um, in pre-production for a series that we're doing around that. Um, that's long-form content. It's not the traditional short-form content that we're known for. So I'd say that that's probably the project I'm most excited about. But we do have other stuff that we're working on. Um, we have uh, another podcast series that will probably be out by the end of the year that we've been putting a lot of production time into. Um, so kind of really just trying to, uh, I wouldn't say set the bar higher because the reality is like we're a hunting brand. So it's like every other industry is already doing everything we do. <laughs> we're just, you know, we're just doing it like, uh, instead of 10 years behind them, we're doing it like two years behind them. So <laughs> it makes us like, so cutting edge. <laughs> um, so we're just trying to keep up with kind of like mainstream society, as far as, uh, media, uh, styles and media, uh, format and making sure that we're covering. I mean, sound is a huge thing. I mean, we're crushing out audiobooks. Um, we have New England grouse shooting about to come out, which is a really big deal for us, uh, which was written by William Harden Foster. It's, it's one of the, uh, would be questionable, one of like the three cornerstone books of, of upland hunting. Um, we also just did um, uh, Upland Shooting Life, um, which again, I mean, you're talking George Bird Evans is again, one of the godfathers of modern upland hunting. So um, being able to preserve those classics in a new format, particularly to allow younger and newer generations to um, carry on those traditions, those ideas, evolve them as their own, um, and make sure that these people's legacies are held in some kind of modern media format um, so that they're not lost to time. Um, you know, the first book we ever did in that series was Woodcock Shooting, which was written at the turn of the century, um, you know, out of, um, you know, the guy that wrote it was from Rhode Island. So, I mean, you're, you're talking some some, you know, ancient books in the world of like, that was the, the crowning moment of modern woodcock shooting as we know it. So it's, it's interesting because we're recording this in, in late May, um, this will air in June and, uh, Todd Waldron of rough grouse society was on with us recently. And I think we'll air the week before this does oh, cool. and we did a, a draft of books, outdoor books. Yeah. And so he's mentioned some of the names that, that, that you just mentioned. So it's going to be kind of cool how that ties together. I'm, I'm excited about that. I love, I love Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. We're definitely having a Northeastern uh, flavor to the, to the Florida podcast, which is cool. Because you guys will all move here eventually. Anyway. I was just going to say, yeah, cause we all migrate there. I know like a ton of my family did. So <laughs> um, I want to go, I want to, I want to camp out for just a minute on a, on a topic that you and I have traded emails before in the past. Mm -hmm. And, um, you have been, and I'll say critical, and I don't know if that's a fair word, but I'll just say it conversationally, you and I talking, you've been critical or, or uh, ho holding R3 accountable in the past. Like you, you and Chet have, have written some pieces and stuff about the R3 program or the R3 movement at, at large. Like, can you kind of take us through your thinking on R3, where it's at, like, like how you view it and, and just give us your perspective on that, on that I'll yeah, call it movement I, program, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, totally. Well, I think, um, I think what is sho was shocking for me with the R3 movement is that everything that they kind of preached or tried to emulate was the way I grew up. And I didn't think it was unusual. I was mentored by a guy who is uh, Puerto Rican, grew in a, you know, lived in a seedy side of town that was, you know, riddled with street crime and definitely had uh, left in less than savorable uh, career paths in life. And he was my mentor. I mean, he made me the deer hunter I was, um, all those things. And I remember, you know, kind of sitting down and starting to be, be inside the industry in situations because Project Upland started to take off. 
and I guess I was just shocked by the conversations that went on where it was like, I didn't think my story was unusual. And then suddenly I started hearing that, yeah, being mentored by, you know, a Puerto Rican immigrant and, you know, whatever else is an unusual path in the hunting. It's not if you grew up in, you know, the outskirts of Boston, you know, like it's, it's completely commonplace. And then furthermore, you know, being so young in the hunting space, as far as my grandfather, you know, immigrating here and then getting into it was an unusual path as well. Um, so, um, I, and again, growing up in it, you have tunnel vision. You don't think any of those things are unusual. So then I started seeing it. Um, and I think one of the things that really struck me was when we first got involved in kind of the purposeful R3 aspect and how we got involved in it is I have a buddy who works for Mass Wildlife who goes like, oh man, like you guys are really crushing it in the R3 space. And I was literally like, what's, what is R3? I don't even know what R3 is. So he explained it to me. And essentially his thing is that you, your brands appeal to so many people that are non-traditional demographics. Um, you know, so therefore you're engaged in this R3 work for us. It was just like, we just want to do cool stories. And like, we're really passionate about what we do. And it was just like, you know, the, the recruiting of new hunters and new demographics was, was, was an accident. It wasn't purposeful. We have obviously become purposeful about it since. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the thing is, is that the traditional aspects of hunting have dominated it from day one. It's where all the money is, you know, like it's the capitalist side of the business. And, you know, there's nothing particularly lucrative about, you know, being the new upland hunting brand and, and whatever else. And we don't have endless resources. We haven't been in the business for a hundred years, you know? So when I started seeing the way some of these people conducted, um, I definitely like, you know, one of the biggest trends I see is that there's all sorts of people in the industry that want to save hunting at all costs only if it's on their terms. And that's, and that's something that, you know, I, I just, I don't know, I'm a new Englander. I, <laughs> I don't know when to shut up. So um, we did a lot of market research inside project upland. And since it's such a non-traditional demographic um, we were able to give kind of a, a, at least a little bit of a glimpse under what, what, would, what could hunting look like and what would those people think, these new people think. So, you know, one of the, one of the first exciting moments is, uh, I think it was our third round of surveying that we got a data set that broke a thousand people that were first generation hunters, meaning their mother or father did not hunt. And so for us, you know, we, you can tech, you know, some people say you can consider a stable data set over 250 people. Some say, people say it's 500. We kind of err in the caution of you got to be over 500. Once we hit over a thousand, we were like, this data set is stable. And I think it's important to always say when we discuss anything that we've done in our three research is that this is a progressive demographic. Um, so it does not represent hunting as a whole, um, it, but it does represent very mo most likely what a lot of the future demographic will look like, which is really insightful. So um, we were able to take data like that and tell things like um, how much are people hunting public lands? What do they think about climate change? Uh, how do they feel about lead in the environment? Um, what are their, how many are members of nonprofits? Which nonprofits are they members to? What type of media are they consumption? How are they consuming it? How do they self-identify? Do they self-identify as a, as just a hunter? Do they self-identify as a dogman? Do they self-identify as a grouse hunter? You know, so we really got to dive into, uh, these different things. I mean, I researched the concept of the use of the word sport and hunting was one of the first things that I, I really went down a rabbit hole. And what I did is I took the Webster definition of sport. And I asked the question, you know, do you believe that hunting is, and, I, and I'm going to butcher this, it's been so long. Essentially, it's, it's like, do you believe hunting is an activity that's a competition of a team of people or people against each other or whatever else for, and obviously, you know, like 90% of the audience said no. And so, you know, that was one of the first things I really advocated was removing the word sport from hunting. Um, I also don't believe in the use of the word harvest and hunting. I think it's it's something that was greenwashed by people who are actually not anything even close to that. They did it because that's what they thought that this imaginary demographic wanted. Um, and they don't. I mean, there's an honesty to this new generation, which is if you killed it, you killed it. Own up to it. I actually, you know, every time they do the magazine, you know, when they, when they're going through the proofing process, I always do a, a word search and make sure the word sports not in there. And I make sure the word harvest is not in there. And like harvest, it's like, it's funny. We had a, a new employee on a call for his first time in a magazine review a couple of weeks ago. And he was like, well, what do you replace the word harvest with? 
I was like, I don't know, kill. That's what you're doing. Kill, shot, dead. <laughs> Anything other than pulling a vegetable out of the ground. <laughs> um, you know, call a spade a spade. So I, I, you know, I've really pushed into kind of, you know, I think that the, I hate to use kind of a, a you know, like a, a keyword, you know, but that's kind of the authenticity of it, you know, like of, of saying what it is. And, and, and I think one of the difficult things about my work is that my work has obviously been very controversial because I'm a little bit of a, a unicorn in uh, whether it's politics and also, you know, uh, different beliefs. So I'm the first one to say that, you know, the black gun crowd is paying more for conservation than hunters are. <laughs> and uh, you have to own up for that, you know, and, and I actually I'm not really into this whole trend of like of you know, hunters claiming that they do more for conservation than anybody else. Cause it's not true. It's like the dude that's at the range shooting a pallet of ammo out of his, you know, out of whatever new black gun he's got, that dude is actually paying for conservation way more than me who shoots, you know, like, yeah, I'm buying a lot of hunting licenses. I'm shooting a fair amount at skeet ranges, but I'm not, I'm not making that, that, that Pittman Robinson tax is not hitting the bank accounts for the government like they are from that crowd. So, and that's, you know, that's, um, I guess an unpopular view, um, but it's an honest view. And, and I'm really about kind of this accountability in our industry for having the honest conversations, which are um, call a spade a spade, whether it's popular or not. Um, and that's it. And, and I find myself, you know, I don't fit in a cookie cutter as a result of it, because I do have, you know, I guess some people would think conflicting views on a lot of things. So. And I think that's, that's part of what makes what you're doing so attractive, right? Is, is you, you disrupting without setting out to disrupt. You're disrupting yeah. by just being authentic about your take on things um, and, and where you feel like you could plug in and serve. And you served on the, the Biden sportsman for Biden committee. And I'm, I'm going to guess you took a lot of heat from the hunting community for that. Oh, I, a little, a, a little bit is, or some is, I mean, I got death threats, um, I mean, it went on for months. Um, I mean, it got bad. Um, we were offered security, you know, like, um, I, I think it's outrageous. I just think it's ridiculous because it's just, uh, people want to make everything so black and white. Um, you know, you can support somebody and not hundred percent agree with someone. I think it's fair to say that obviously I don't agree with the gun policies of the Biden administration, <laughs> you know, so it's like, but, you know, there's certain aspects where it's like, you know, um, upland hunting is my life, you know, before Project Upland, you know, like it's, it's what I live and breathe. I have very narrow focuses of interest in life. And um, the idea that sage grouse will most likely be unhuntable in my lifetime, the fact that I can't hunt rough grouse where I grew up, those are alarming things to me. I had an opportunity to help influence policy specifically around forest cutting, specifically around sage grouse policy. Um, and I jumped at that opportunity because the reality is, you know, it's like this two-way scare tactic. It's like, we have a conservative majority Supreme court. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, any gun control measure that goes through is going to get eaten alive. Like, and you're never going to have enough senators to create, overturn the second amendment. So it's like, to me, it's not a critical thing. It's not as critical as people make it sound. I get it. I get that people are afraid. They've been taught to be afraid. I think they're all valid feelings. Um, I don't dismiss that, but I think the reality is, is that if, if I was giving a single issue choice, which is the death of the sage grouse or again, growing up in Massachusetts, I saw assault weapon bans, but you know what? They always come back. You can turn the factory back on. It is a second amendment. Sage grouse are not protected against the second amendment. And when they're gone, you can't turn the factories back on. And for me, that was too much. And I, and I recognize how controversial that is. Um, it's not lost on me, but I think the, diff the part that frustrates me is how black and white people wanted to make it. Um, and it's not. Um, I mean, the point is, is that I believe that no matter what the party is, that I would want a seat at the table or anybody who is wants to be truly critical and truly out for the future of game and guns to be at that table. And, and that's and that's why I got involved. And I and I don't regret it. I don't one bit. Um, if anything, it made it a lot clearer to me about how certain parts of our culture have been turned into extremism 
And, and, I, and I am a firm believer that there are no gun laws that can fix that. Um, I believe that it's only a problem that we as hunters, we as gun owners can solve as a cultural crisis. And until we look into ourselves and recognize that and solve it ourselves and police ourselves to solve it, it's never going to resolve. You can't pass a law to fix what's going on. And, and, you know, and I, and I get that that's, you know, directly, you know, not in line with, <laughs> you know, the administration that I supported, you know, but Hey, whatever, you know, like uh, I think it's ridiculous that people think that they can pick a political candidate and hundred percent agree with it. And also I think it's ridiculous that anybody thinks any politician's not a liar. Excuse my language. I said I was going to swear, you know, but I, I mean, that's, that's the truth of it. Like, I, I mean, come on, you know, like this is, this is the lesser of two evils at all times. This is not, oh, I got this perfect choice of, uh, uh, of that's going to protect, you know, the sage grouse and is also not going to take away my guns. You know, like I didn't get that choice. If I got that choice, then yeah, I agree with people's black and white assessments of the world, but nobody got that choice. Me or anybody else in this culture got that choice. I love your answer. I love, I love everything you just said. I, I always equate it. Someone smart once told me um, rooting against the president, rooting against an elected official is like rooting for the pilot to crash the plane. Like, like yeah. at the end of the day, yeah. at the end of the day, whoever's the president, whoever's in office, like you don't hear me talk about politics much, but I'm rooting for them to be successful, but Absolutely. I want influence in what they're doing. I want them to hear what I'm saying yeah. and answer to my issues. Um, kind of like what you're talking about, like, like having influence, having a seat at the table to some degree, if you can. So, um, I just thought that was a, that was a, a thing that was well worth, worth touching on. So I want to go, I want to go back because you talked about a lot of stuff. I want to go back here and as you kind of talked about R3, as you kind of talked about, talked through politics a little bit there, I want to know, what do you think are some things, some steps, some ideas, some concepts that we need to be thinking about to, I'll say broadly, save hunting, whatever that looks like, whatever that feels like to, to AJ, um, what, what's going to have to change? What's going to have to happen for hunting to be successful? in the United States in, in five years, 20 years, 50 years, pick, pick it arbitrarily wherever you want, but like, what's the future right. look like? You know, I, I think it, there's, there's kind of two, two parts to that. One is lowering barrier of entry, which all of us know. Um, and a lot of that is information-based. So, um, you know, I know some people sometimes look at a project upland article and it's like, you know, how to put a choke in it. I mean, how to put a, um, um, oh my God, I'm drawing a blank here, how to put a tube in a shotgun, you know, to reduce the amount of shells. And people are just like, why are you like, why are you guys writing this? And it's like, well, because there's a lot of our audience that has no idea, you know, and when you go hunt woodcock, you can only have three rounds in your gun. You know, So, um, so that's lowering that barrier of entry because these people, you know, like when you're completely new to it, if you didn't grow up into it, terms that you and I use that are just commonplace, like, you know, we're talking about like a turkey hanging up. If you say that to any turkey hunter, every turkey hunter knows what a turkey hanging up is, you know, but if you say that to somebody who's turkey hunting and you're like, oh, the turkey hung up, they're looking at you like you have eight heads. Like, what do you mean the turkey hung up? You know, like, so point being this idea of lowering uh, the bar of entry happens on multiple fronts. The one that I can have influence on or our brand can have influence on and in, in, is um, information sharing, um, the how-to aspect of hunting. Um, so, you know, that's one side, the aspect of, uh, hunter education, as far as getting your safety course, <clears throat> buying license, simplifying, buying licenses, simplifying kind of how people look at laws. That's up to the government to do. Um, we've consulted in a lot of that work. We have worked on that stuff, but that's ultimately in the government's hands to do. Um, and then, you know, kind of the, the, uh, other side of it is, uh, the popularization of it. So it's like, you know, I think something's great. I saw a study about how like more people are buying, you know, like there's more gun owners, increasing gun owners than anything. The greatest way to create gun awareness and create people that won't be so quick to jump to laws is for them to have the veil pulled back to like actually own a gun and be like, okay, I have firsthand knowledge of said item. Um, in my opinion, is now different. It might not be the same as is what people will want, but it is definitely different than if you have no experience. And I think hunting is very much the same, where it's like sharing 
a venison steak with your neighbor who's never hunted is part of that lowering that barrier. Um, and I think both gun ownership and hunting are very American. Um, and they have been this extremist aspect of like what, what we see is only something that has become polarized, I think, in the past couple of decades. Um, and one of the things I specifically see in hunting, it's like, you know, I was just like, when I saw all these people using the PETA, you know, Facebook profile picture, and it's just like, you're giving them the light of day. You're giving an, cause they're extremists. I don't care how you cut it. PETA's extremist. Even people who are, are who are not particularly thrilled about hunting think Peter are extremists. So now when you as an entire community pit yourself against an extremist group and show that you're the counter to said extremist, you're also an extremist, you know, like, and that's, so for me, it's like, it's about the normalization. Um, and I think that that's a, a huge factor is that we need to normalize hunting inside mainstream culture. I think the whole aspect of the organic meat craze and stuff like that is doing a great natural job at, is how our society has evolved and stuff like that. But there, there are different, you know, aspects of seeing it, like using dogs. Dogs are a really easy method to get people in. It's like, all these people have hunting breeds that have never hunted. And, you know, you see these TikTok videos of people, you know, posting their dog in the city, pointing pigeons and just like thinking it's hilarious. And it's like, yo, dude, like that's its hunting instinct coming out. So there, and that's why I'm so passionate, particularly about hunting dog confidential, because I look at it as this massive catalyst for us to bridge this gap, to let people embrace the, the hunting aspect of those animals, those dogs, um, and how normal it is and how human it is. Um, and, and that's what I think is the save hunting is just to recognize, you know, and I shouldn't even say American. It's just, it's, it's a profoundly human thing. Um, we eat meat, you know, we <laughs> we're originally hunters and gatherers. Um, it is hunting is quite literally the oldest human tradition. <laughs> um, and telling, you know, stories around campfires, I can guarantee you the first ones were probably hunting stories, you know? So, and, and that's what we're doing when we hit record on a podcast or just different, different campfire now. <laughs> I love, I love that, man. That's, that's a fantastic answer. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head with, with so much of it. We, we, uh, we jokingly do a recurring series called suburban dictionary mm -hmm. where we, where we unpack terms cupped up or decoying or like, like terms that we use all the time that we think, man, from a, from a, from a newcomer's perspective, th that vocabulary really sounds yeah, yeah. To, to use. Like what does cupped up mean when a duck does that? So right. um, I, I love, I love the way you hung up and, and, and kind of, kind of hung out there for a minute and, and normalization of hunting is exactly, I believe you're, you're spot on. Like that's the, that's the only way. Yeah. We, this. We yeah, we don't need more hunters per se. I mean, I'm, I'm all about more hunters. Don't get me wrong. I don't, you know, I know there's been some controversy with some groups lately saying we don't need more hunters. I think, especially with new public lands opening up, I think there's still plenty of room to hunt. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of habitat issues specifically around upland game and stuff. But I think the reality is, is that, you know, somebody doesn't have to be a hunter to support hunting and to be okay with hunting. And I think that that's important is that we remember that um, most of America just doesn't have an opinion about hunting. <laughs> so just be a good, um, you know, be a good example, you know, um, and, and, you know, think about how you're portraying what it is, um, you know, and, and that's a lot of self-reflecting. I mean, I, about la I'd say about a year plus ago, I kind of made a comment about Project Upland about how, you know, an internal discussion about how there's a lot of new people that come into hunting through Project Upland. And I realized that birds don't always get eaten in all the films we produce. And I was like, you know, like if I'm not a hunter and I see this, I haven't like, we all know that all the birds are getting eaten because we're hunters, you know, like, but we haven't done a good enough job to convey all birds were eaten in the making of this film. And so uh, that's something that um, I've, you know, as a brand, we self-reflect and we try to better our, our brand and we try to be critical of our own brand and think about how is the, this unopinionated public perceiving when they, if they stumble into a Project Upland film, how are they going to perceive our culture? Um, and, and so we put a lot of time into that, all while still being true to the culture itself. Um, and that's important because you, you, sh you can't make it what it's not either, you know, like it's gotta be what it is. Um, and there are parts of hunting that can be jarring for people. Um, 
you know, and, and there's different things like trapping, you know, like I think trapping is so important and it is important. We all know it's important to our environment, but it's like, it's got like just such a bad rap, you know, and it's like, there is no project upland for trapping <laughs> that's, that's doing good PR and, and, and covering those things. And, and, and unfortunately that's the reality that we live in. We live in a, a media driven age where TikTok dominates, you know, today and something new will dominate tomorrow. And the reality is, is as a culture, if we're not keeping up with those mediums, you become irrelevant. And that lack of formed opinion in a greater uh, arena it becomes easily more corruptible in one direction than the other. So as a result, you know, we do need to keep up with the times. We do need to um, produce media con content that that's relevant, um, again, both to the culture as well as to people who don't understand the culture. Say it louder for the people in the back. Like that's, that's <laughs> the, the, we've talked a, a lot about the Marshall McClue and the medium is the message. And that's exactly what you're talking about here. Like uh, such a, such a great thing. AJ, if folks want to learn more about any of the stuff you thought about Northwoods Collective, Hunting, Hunting Dog Confidential, Project Upland, where, where can they find that stuff? Find, find social media's website. Yeah. Or give us all your ats. Yeah. I mean, I'd say projectupland.com is the best place to go for all of it. Um, you know, uh, Instagram, which is at, project underscore upland um facebook i think is you know at project upland um instagram's probably the most active for us on social media um our website is you know the most forward-facing so hunting dog confidential endless migration and morning thunder so that represents our dog centric part of our company our waterfowl centric and our turkey hunting content all exists under projectupland.com now. Um, so you can navigate through there. We're, we're really working hard to make that information, uh, that roadmap of like navigation to really find easy if you're looking for. And we have new updates to the site that will be coming over the course of this year next that will continue to kind of make finding information through us um, easier. So that's the best way to um, find us. You can find public grouse on, um, on Apple TV, on Amazon, um, really any streaming networks on like Xfinity, a few other cable places as well. Um, so that's kind of where, where the core of our brand Northwoods collective is, is an industry company. So it's a business to business operation, not really, um, you know, I know some people sometimes stumble into some of the articles we read on there and they're horrified. Uh, and I definitely don't hold my tongue on some things. And, uh, but those, those are, you know, when you read something like that, you got to understand that it, again, the people that have consumed this, because we actually do a print publication called Hunt Rising that's actually mailed to every state agency. It's mailed to a bunch of industry companies, um, and it's about our data research, and we give that information away free. Uh, but the precursor, because you're seeing those articles now published online, the precursor, if you actually read our Hunt Rising magazine, is like, we're saying this is a very specific demographic. This is what the future of hunting can certainly look like. This is a very young audience. This is, you know, and I say young, and I think that's the irony. It's like, you know, I'm 39 years old. I'm not that young, you know, <laughs> like, you know, so it's, I mean, I, you know, there's millennials that are 40 years old today. So, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it tends to be a millennial to Gen Z centric audience. We still have a strong following in the Gen X crowd and we still have a strong baby boomer following. Um, but nevertheless, yeah. And one of the things with Northwoods Collective, I think those articles sometimes that get a little edgy are pointing out cultural trends, like the decline in uh, the decline in certain aspects or, or cultural trends in hunting. Um, and th that's just pointing out facts. I mean, it's just happening, you know, and um, it's, it's sure some of it's still opinion based. Some of it is backed up by data. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just a really candid look. Um, and it should be taken as that as a really candid look and it's an honest look and it, and it should be creative. I know that that's how you and I first met is, you know, you were critical of, of an article that we had written, which in retrospect, I combined two articles and I shouldn't have, um, I still regret doing that. Uh, and I think you've probably noticed I've since separated them, um, that, but what it did is exactly what the intention of our research is to do, which is to start a conversation, to get those wheels turning. You know, it's okay if we're wrong. It's okay that if we hit something on data that we come back to it and, and maybe we, it, maybe there was something different about it. But nevertheless, it's that point is to have the hard conversations. And those hard conversations are things like, what is the future of, you know, something like the sage grouse? What is the future of guns? What is 
um, the cultural divide between baby boomers to millennials. These are really hard conversations. They're not, they're not really exciting. They're, they're painful. They're very painful. Um, and I don't particularly relish in them um, as, as being like excited about them, but it, it has come out in the work and we have um, embraced it. And, and I hope that at minimum, it gets people to talk and be critical of what we say and also critical of even the opposite of it and just formulate your own opinion on it and think about the facts. And that's the huge thing is just, you know, call a spade a spade, you know, and that's just so important to me is like enough of this black and white because there is nothing black and white about this. There is absolutely nothing and there's no easy choice in this. And I just, I wish people would spend more time on admitting that and being a little more candid on that as, as they go into this. And I, and I think, I think overall the industry is, and I think whether the, the industry likes it or not, things are changing. Um, and I, I mean, people are getting older, people aren't getting younger, myself included. I mean, come on, like I see things that Gen Z does and it just goes over my head already, you know, like, like millennials are old, <laughs> you know, like, like it's already like we're old news, you know? So it's even that is just like, nobody's living in anybody's basement. You know, like we've all had careers and and have hunted for you know like I shot my first grouse thirty something years ago you know like come on so AJ DeRosa thank you so much for joining us for giving us your time and uh, we will definitely be keeping tabs on Project Upland and and all the stuff you're doing there really appreciate it man thank you thank you for having me. Thanks again to AJ DeRosa for giving us so much of his time, being so generous with us and so candid with us. I just, I want to listen to that again and I recorded it and I edited it. So man, I I really felt like that was a great interview and what a great voice for the the hunting community to have out there on our side in AJ. Uh, Make sure to go to projectupland.com. You can check out Hunting All Confidential. You can check out all their projects from there. You can support them uh, through downloading their videos, watching them on any of the streaming services, stuff like that. I think you can buy most of the project I think you can buy public grouse and i think you can probably get uh uh 2000 miles as well now um anyway thanks again to aj if you enjoyed the podcast please leave us a review on apple podcast itunes wherever you can figure out a way to leave us a review hope everyone has a great week and we'll talk to y'all later